So really what I advocate for is going through much the same kind of general flow we go through in building products to try to figure out what are the biggest opportunities or problems to solve with your culture? How do you experiment around solving those in the context of a smaller team? And then once you find those things that work, those things that actually move the needle that you're interested in moving, how do you roll those out organization-wide? Why do some companies succeed in driving growth while others fail? How do some individuals advance in their careers to lead teams that change industries? In the age of mobile, these are the stories of the companies shaping the way we interact with our world and the people who drive their growth. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to have Andrew Brinkman, VP of Product of Bonusly, joining us today. Andrew has over 14 years of experience of building product teams that drive outcome from Sling TV, Huddle, Penlink, and IBM. Welcome, Andrew. We're so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thanks. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here and get a chance to talk with you today. Let's start with Bonusly. Tell us, for those listeners who don't know what Bonusly is, tell us a little bit about the company, your role. How did you end up there? Let's start with that. Yeah, I am currently head of product at Bonusly. And what Bonusly is all about is helping kind of build and reinforce a collaborative and transparent company culture. And the way that we primarily do that is through peer-to-peer recognition. So basically, we just provide a tool or a platform where you can go in, you can tag somebody, you can say, hey, thank you for helping me with this report or this meeting or saving me when my podcast notes didn't show up or something like that. You can give them points and those points can be redeemed as they build up for gift cards, swag experiences, things like that. But to us, again, the rewards are secondary. The primary thing is the recognition and the sense of collaboration and community that that builds. It kind of reinforces relationships. And then for HR people, you can kind of see where that collaboration, where that recognition is happening. You can start to see how people are collaborating. You can see if they're not collaborating as much as you think they would, and it starts to dig in there a little bit more. So it's great for people that use it for recognition's sake, but it also helps HR people understand kind of the shape of the organization, how you might improve that as well. That's very cool. And what's your role as VP of product? What does yeah. your role encompass and what made you choose Bonusly? Yeah, good question. So, I mean, as head of product, really what I try to do is, is provide the vision and the strategy along with the product leadership team that helps give the teams the direction plus the autonomy to figure out, A, what are the best problems we can solve for our customers? And B, what is solving those problems going to do for them and for the business? I am very much not a person that comes in and tells you exactly what to build. I try to tell the PMs to fall in love with the problem, not necessarily the solution, although obviously you do have to come up with a solution at some point to solve that problem. How I ended up ended up here, I actually moved out here to Colorado about a year ago to work with Sling. I'd spent eight years at Huddle before that, which is looking for something different. Been in sports tech for a really long time. Huddle is a sports video and analytics company. I've used Sling Right when it launched back in 2015, I thought it was really cool to have an opportunity to go in and be the number two product person and kind of the original over-the-top live video provider. But yeah, I was there and I actually had the opportunity to participate in a leadership development program there called Climb, which was really, really cool. One of the primary focuses of it was culture along with DE&I and just innovation in general. So I learned a lot about culture, both in the context of Sling and Dish specifically, but also generally, how do we... Think about culture structurally. How do you change culture? Where does DE and I fit in? I just became more passionate about that than I had been previously. And I started to look around for opportunities where I might be able to have more influence there. And right before the holidays, I saw this head of product job for Bonusly pop up. And I was like, huh, 
that seems it might be potentially a fit. So I just randomly applied to this thing I saw on LinkedIn and, and one thing led to another. I really like the conversations with the team. I like the product. I think it's in a very relevant space with how work has evolved, especially over the last few years. And uh, it's been really, really fun. It's everything I thought it would be. Lots of opportunity in front of us, really cool collaborative team. And yeah, I think there's a ton of growth potential for us here. And you were telling me earlier that you're you're doing a talk about how to think about building culture, like you've been in product. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a highlight? Tell us a bit about where the talk is, if people yeah. want to find it, and also maybe one or two highlights of your talk. Sure, sure. So yeah, I'm giving a talk here in a couple of days at CultureCon, which is in Madison, Wisconsin. It'll be my first time spending time in that city, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, the talk is really around how to build culture like you would a product. And I think that's really important because product teams, or whether you're building a service too, this is true, they exist within the context of a company's culture. Now, in my opinion, if you have, again, a transparent, collaborative, reinforcing company culture, more often than not, you're going to build a better product than the equivalent that was created in the context of a very hierarchical, micromanagey, top-down culture. That's because in the first type of culture, you tend to, again, like have more dialogue, things are more free-flowing. You tend to get more ideas get acted on by individual contributors that are closer to the situation on the ground versus having EPs or people like me that are in positions of authority, but maybe out of touch with the reality, dictating solutions, dictating timelines, dictating projects in this particular way of doing things. So really what I advocate for is going through much the same kind of general flow we go through in building products to try to figure out what are the biggest opportunities or problems to solve with your culture? How do you experiment around solving those in the context of a smaller team? And then once you find those things that work, those things that actually move the needle that you're interested in moving, how do you roll those out organization-wide? So that's very similar to what we do with product. We figure out biggest pain points, experiment to try to solve those, take the things that work and build them for quality and scale. I love it. That's really cool. I'm actually, I think I was telling you earlier, I'm doing a talk about culture too. And mm. one of the biggest things I'm like, you can iterate. Your values can change as you right. grow. Yeah, it's okay to iterate. Yeah, your culture and your values don't need to be locked in stone. And that's actually one of the first things I'll start in my talk is I'll, I'm actually going to tell a quick story about Huddle, the company I was at a couple of stops ago and how they just, I think it was two months ago, changed one of the values that they've had since the very beginning of their company in response to how work has changed and how people were perceiving a value called we're a family. They changed it into something called we win together, which I think is a very healthy change. That's awesome. Yeah, I think we're at iteration number five of our values. They're oh, very wow. close to each other, but... I don't know. It's just the things we value now as a 500 and something company are just different than what we value when we're yeah. four people. Yeah. As you scale, you have to decide what you want to keep and, and what needs to change, right? And most of them are exactly the same, but some have evolved. So I think I love, I love that thinking. I never really quite put it, oh, you have to think about building your culture is building a product, but I love that framing. And I think it's, I might steal it from you. Feel free. Yeah. It's out there to try to help people. It's not something I'm trying to keep close to the chest. So take what's useful. That's really cool. I can't wait to watch your talk. Hopefully there's going to be a link somewhere. Thanks. Likewise. So is there anything exciting you're, that's coming down the roadmap or bonusly? Well, how are you thinking yeah. about product growth in the next few years? Yeah, I think there's a, a ton of exciting stuff we're just starting to get into. And a lot of my first few months was just understanding the team and kind of the lay of the land. But we're finally getting to a point where I think we have everybody kind of pointed generally in the direction we want them to go. In, and we're starting to uncover some really cool stuff. So for example, one of the things we want to do is move beyond peer-to-peer -peer recognition. So that's really what the platform is right now. Whether I'm an individual contributor or a manager, or an executive, 
the recognition for me appears to be the same as it is from everybody else. But at the same time, winning employee of the year is just inherently different than running a good meeting. So we probably within our product don't want to treat those two things exactly the same. So we need to figure out how do we recognize like almost this hierarchy of needs of recognition, have different methods, modalities of recognition that kind of correspond to the situation and how big its impact was. So that's one of the big things we're thinking about. Another thing is with managers and their employees, how do we help them build tighter, more evidence-based, more personal connections? We don't want to like build another one-on-one template or another OKR tool. There's a ton of those out there. My spicy take is they're not very differentiated. A lot of them are just taking a Google Docs template and, and turning them into a product. In our recognition product, we collect tons of positive examples of behavior and outcomes and accomplishments. I think the real challenge for us is how do we get more discourse flowing through go- about growth opportunities and how do we make that more evidence-based? And then a third thing we're thinking about is insights. And this is kind of both at the individual level and also the organizational level. How can we start to paint a picture of, again, individual team organizational health from a cultural perspective? How do we make those analytics actionable? So not just like, hey, here's how many individual points of recognition were given and received over a given month, but hey, this is the types of themes we're seeing in the recognition. This is how this compares to other organizations that are kind of within your profile in terms of size, in terms of culture, in terms of whatever image you might think of. That's cool. Based on what we're seeing, here's what you should do about it. That's the other big thing thematically we're thinking about. That's cool. I would love to see something like that for Branch. How awesome. Long road ahead of us, but I think there's a ton of potential there. I think the other question I'm kind of curious about, you guys are somewhere between B2B and B2C, your customers are probably both organizations and their employees. Right. How do you think about driving growth from both as a company perspective, a product perspective? How do you get new customers? How do you drive new people to you to adopt and use your product? Yeah, you're very right. It's kind of like an intersection of both. We have a very, I would call it B2B sales model. But I think it's important to keep the personas of both that decision maker, which is usually some kind of like HR executive or manager or admin in mind, as well as that as the individual user. So one of the things we really key on is what we call participation rate, which is what percentage of the organization that has access to Bonusly has either given or received recognition at least once in a given month. And we try to drive that up collaboratively through working with the people that are using us as quickly as possible. A lot of times there's a lot of appetite for this kind of thing. So it kind of happens organically. One of the things we're thinking about doing just as a really tangible example is how do we drive expansion in organizations that are already using Bonusly? So Again, credit to one of our product teams. They conceived of this entirely on their own and executed on it. They decided to go out and survey some of our customers to say, hey, few months, for example, how often have you tried to give recognition to somebody outside of Bonusly? And what type of person was that? Was that another employee? Was that a contractor? Was that family friend? And we're seeing in some of these cases, 75% of survey respondents were trying to give recognition to somebody they didn't have access to. In a lot of cases, these were customers. So in addition to helping us kind of fuel more research opportunities for like, hey, what might we need to build to encourage this expansion? It's also something we can give right back to our customer success team and say, hey, here's a team where there's a lot of organic demand to expand bonusly to the rest of the organization or at least to more teams. Take this back, use this to have more evidence-based conversation about what the next steps look like. Show them the data that's available out there to say, hey, you really have a crew of people that wants to take advantage of this. Let's have a conversation about it. Very, very, very cool. I like the double, almost like a two-prong strategy. Yeah. It's cool. So let's move a little bit to talk about your career and 
I've always asked this question. You've worked on several products. Is there a product or feature that you're very proud of that kind of stands out throughout your career, either a bonus layer or before? Yeah, I would have to say that probably the main one that sticks out to me is something called Huddle Assist. So to put that in context, I'd been at Huddle for, gosh, probably like three-ish years. I'd been primarily working on basketball there. And again, Huddle is a sports video and analytics company. So basically what happens is teams play a game, they upload their video to Huddle. At the time, if they were interested in stats, they would have to add all those in themselves after the fact. And then you could do some type of analysis on it, see what happened, see maybe where your opportunities for improvement were. But again, the whole situation was you had to have a user that was willing to put in the time and effort and energy to watch the video back again and enter all those stats. Basically, you're in a situation where the business was looking for opportunities to grow. And our chief operating officer put out a call for new business ideas, new product ideas. And as far as I know, only two people responded. One was me and one was another PM who's working on our football product. His name is Greg Nelson. So I proposed basically analytics as a service. So they would still upload their video, but we would, via humans, break down the stats and return those to you and then be an additional subscription offering. Greg proposed a sideline instant replay tool. It became a huddle sideline product. So both of our plans got approved. For mine, we were able to get a small product team together. I got some BizOps people. We were able to throw together a, a beta in a couple of months. We found a partner that was based in the Philippines to actually do the tagging of the analytics. We were able to get 300 basketball teams on it that first year. Wow. Yeah, we were able to expand it to all basketball teams the next year. Greg was able to take that and apply it to football. By the time I left Huddle, that was around $25 million ARR line of business. Wow. It was actually about to eclipse the subscription revenue for the business unit that we were in. And yeah, for Greg and I, we ended up as GM and and head of product of that business unit. So I guess it worked out for both of us coming out of that kind of call for business plans. Why do you think made it so successful? Was it just that you guys like hit on something and people wanted? Was there grit? For was a lesson for others who are trying to build successful products or features? That's a really good question. I think <laughs> grit is definitely part of it. I'm not going to claim everything went smoothly. There were a lot of lessons learned for me operationally on what it actually would take to not just build a product where people could technically input stats, but how do you actually create a system and a workflow that allows people to figure out like, hey, what games you need to get? What staffing model do we need to provide? That was a big lesson learned. There was a great team around me that helped us kind of work through all that. So part of it's grit, part of it's having the right team, part of it's just being honest about what's working, what's not, and adapting in those situations. I think Greg had a very similar situation with Huddle Sideline, had a number of technical bumps over the first year that we were able to work through. But I think the thing, kind of to the point you made in your question that sustained both of us through that was, we recognized that this was a legitimate market need. And though we might have solved it imperfectly in our first attempt at it, we were at least trying. And for some people, it was working. And we recognized that. And we were willing to keep iterating on it and adapting it instead of just throwing it away, despite those bumps in the road that we experienced. So at the end of the day, I think a lot of it does come down to grit and seeing when there's some there there, knowing what success looks like and and powering through when you run into those bumps in the road. I love that. I think that's a good lesson. I think some of us give up too early. I think if you're convinced on the market need... I think, and if you have grit, you'll definitely find a way to succeed, right? Totally agree. Other side of that question is, how about something that you thought was going to do really well, but flopped and maybe lessons from that as well? Probably the best example is actually the very first thing I worked on when I started at Huddle. And, and this was back in 2013. We were trying to diversify the business a little bit. So we were very, very strong in high school, football especially. 
I came in to work on basketball, like I mentioned, we wanted to get stronger there, but we wanted to kind of see what we could do that was adjacent to video analysis, but still was solving a problem that we thought our customers had. And we kind of honed in on fundraising. So if you're a parent or you were playing athletics when you were a kid, you probably remember like, okay, it's time to go door-to-door selling cookie dough or candy bars or fruit or greenery or whatever. And I know I didn't enjoy that a ton. We thought there was an opportunity to kind of be disruptive there. This was even before GoFundMe really became a thing. So we built a couple of products. One was a premium subscription product for fans and parents. We call that Insiders. And then we built another thing called Campaigns, which was basically a GoFundMe in this context of sports. It was really cool. We had this ability for coaches to call in via Twilio. They left us this two-minute message about what they were raising money for or why it was important. We would automatically make this highlight video behind the scenes. We'd automatically make this campaign page, give them a link. They could send it out. The insiders thing completely flopped. Turns out as parents, like they usually already had their kids log in to huddle. So they could go in and watch as much video as they liked with all of the data that they wanted. They could see what the coaches were saying. They didn't want to pay for a pared down version of that, even if Mm. the cut went to the school. Campaigns technically stuck around a little while longer. I think we had it around for four or five years, but in terms of overall strategy and its impact on our revenue and our organizations, it just, it didn't end up having the impact that we had, even though I think it was a pretty innovative product. So it was something that we eventually sunset. It was a good experiment that I think we were smart to cut off after only six or seven months of development. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Are you sure to do it differently? Is there a learning for our audience? I would definitely, especially on the insider's front, always validate <laughs> customer desirability before you start to build. And it's important not just to rely on what people tell you when you're doing that. It's important to also look at what people are actually doing. So we talk to a ton of people. We try to do our research, but people are also kind of biased to make you want to like them. So when we're like, hey, would you use this thing? They're like, sure, yeah, of course I'll support my kid's school. But if we'd actually gone and looked a little bit more of the quantitative data, we would have seen these people are already logging in and watching an hour or two of video per week of their kid. You can see the different devices they're using, et cetera. There, we had all this first party data that told that probably should have told us in hindsight. There wasn't as much there there as we might've initially thought from just our strategy or hypothesis. So it's important to do that homework during product discovery. Don't just lean on what people tell you, yeah. lean on what people actually do. Such a good lesson. We actually built a whole, our first paid product with something that people said that they wanted, but they didn't mm-hmm. when no one paid for it. So we actually named the room after it. So we never forget. It's called Branch Exchange. That was the name of the product that failed miserably. If you book Branch, branch Exchange a Branch, you can le- read the story about how we just believed what people told us. It's <laughs> a really, really good lesson. Thank yeah. you for sharing. Yeah, totally. Cool. So I think as you think, about building products and do you have any advice for other product managers? What do you think is one of the biggest challenges you see in building product today and having a successful product? A lot of it actually, I think, goes back to company culture. I've been in environments where there is definitely, I would say more of an out, a focus on outcomes, on the plan, on dates, on features, on look and feel, as opposed to the outcomes that you're trying to create. So What that ends up creating is lots of time wasted on this upfront estimation or planning process or building Gantt charts, things like that. They don't end up giving you any room for additional lessons learned, for 
iteration for just the reality of building a product where things just inherently take longer than you usually think they will. So for product managers, you have to play within the constraints of the game, right? So sometimes you still have to acknowledge that. But what I push product managers to do if they're in an environment like that is make sure you're working with your leadership to get clarity on the outcomes you're trying to drive for the business and for the customers and try to push as much of that that kind of change and that focus and push conversations in that direction while, again, still playing within a, the context of an organization that really cares about some of those other more traditional aspects of, I'll call it, project management. But the other push I make to product engineering leaders is to get really serious about working with their counterparts in operations, biz dev, sales, customer success, to really create more clarity around organizationally, what are those big problems, opportunities, challenges that face the business, and then work with the teams to collaboratively define those together. A lot of times the teams will have the context around what they're doing or why or what impact it's going to make. And the spicy take is sometimes I don't think executives actually know that either, Mm -hmm. but it's easier to say like, hey, go build me this and build it in this amount of time than create this outcome for me. So I think it comes down to PMs, teams, even executives just need to raise their game and just think about (laughs) what is it we're trying to accomplish? Is this actually going to accomplish that? Are we just building something to build something? Are we being performative? Are we doing it for political reasons? There's a lot of that still going on. And I think it's up to product managers and product leaders to try to break through some of that to start to do more things that actually matter. Very cool. I love that advice. You seem to really know product well. I'm kind of curious, how did you get into product? You're studying computer science, you have an MBA. People always kind of like, there's not a traditional school for product and people always wonder, how do I get into product? How do I become a product leader? What's your story and what advice do you have for others who are looking to get into product? Yeah, that's a great question. It's actually one of the ones I always ask when I'm interviewing PM candidates because it's, it's just really interesting to hear how people, I mean, it seems like they almost fall into it, right? And that, yeah. was, that was definitely the case for me. So I would say my first taste to it was actually an undergrad. I was in this program at the University of Nebraska called the Rake School. And as a junior and senior, they have this program called Design Studio. And that gives you the chance to work with real world clients, basically kind of in this consulting arrangement where you're trying to build something for them. And I saw a lot of stuff that worked. I saw a lot of stuff that didn't work in terms of how to build product, how to build software. I remember the one I did my junior year, we didn't actually talk to any end users of the thing we were trying to build until the very, very end of the school year. We showed them what we had. This isn't going to work. Sorry. Thanks for your effort, I guess. So, okay, I want to be in a position where I can make sure if I'm going to be building products, that doesn't happen. But then actually what I ended up doing was my first job out of school was with IBM. I was technically a software engineer. I logged on to this thing that looked like the green screen computers you used to see at the DMV on my first day to like get some accounts set up. And it turned out, hey, I was actually going to be supporting that as a like tier two support person and maybe doing a little coding on the side. That was these things that used to be known as AS400s. So after a week of that, I figured out that was not exactly a long-term career opportunity for me. Cloud was getting bigger. There weren't a ton of opportunities for advancement. So I started to kind of like talk to other people at IBM and in my network to see like, hey, what types of jobs are you doing? What's interesting? As I was on the phones with people, I also started to get frustrated with my like inability to solve their problems in a meaningful way. The worst answer I felt like I could give anybody was, I'm sorry you don't like this, but this is working as designed and I can maybe forward this to an engineering manager who will look at it and immediately discard it. And I didn't like that. So for better or for worse, eventually, this was 2009, 2010, I got laid off. It was a great recession. So I was like, well, now what do I do? I didn't really have a better answer besides like, I'll go back to school, get me MBA, 
kind of start to figure it out, but I knew I wanted to get into product. And luckily I found a great local company to link in called Penlink. They were willing to kind of like work with me and develop me first as a quality engineer, doing a hybrid role with that in PM, and eventually transitioned into to doing product management. I learned a lot about Agile and Scrum when I went back to school too, that I was able to apply there. And then eventually Huddle, which was started by some people that were in that break school program with me, they eventually started looking for their first external hire product manager. So I was able to jump on board that rocket ship in 2013 as that first outside hire PM. What a cool story. And do you have any advice? I mean, I know people sometimes kind of fall into product and that was your experience, but if people actually want to get into product, mm-hmm. any advice on how they should kind of get started? That's a really good question. First of all, I should clarify, even though I went back to school to get my MBA, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. I didn't know exactly how to get into product. And I would say an MBA is definitely not necessary. It's maybe been helpful in a few instances, but I don't think about Black-Scholes option pricing all day, every day or anything like that. So don't feel like you need to do that. I would say if you do want to get into it, the first thing I would recommend is find a mentor, whether that is within your current company or outside. They can kind of help you understand, first of all, what is the role? It's a really difficult role. I think there's been a lot in about how difficult it really is. You just have, There's a lot to balance between, is this going to work for the customers? Is this going to work for the business? Is this something we can actually build? Is this something that is going to be usable, et cetera, et cetera? So I think people need to kind of understand what they're getting into first and finding even if it's not a mentor, just someone you can pick their brain for an hour about the role, their likes or dislikes, can start to help you understand whether or not this is something for you. But then, yeah, I would try to find a mentor. I would try to find opportunities maybe within your current company on a a project-by-project basis, if you operate that way, to try to just dip your toes in the water, understand lots of companies have shadowing opportunities where you can come in and not necessarily take on all that responsibility right away without figuring out exactly what the role is. So if that's something you're looking for, I would definitely take advantage of it. Ultimately, it might come down to having to change companies. And there are a lot of great companies out there that actually have formal apprenticeship programs or looking to hire people that they can develop that are high horsepower, high curiosity, high energy. So if you don't see that opportunity within your own company, I always tell people you're in the business of you first and foremost. So don't be afraid to kind of test the waters and see what else is out there if you think there might be a better developmental opportunity out there for you somewhere else. Cool. I like that. I personally, I thought I wanted to be a product manager. Then I was a product manager. And then I was like, this is not for me. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I didn't actually, I think your advice is really good. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And I, my vision of what product was is very different than what product actually was when I was a product manager. So I think that's extremely good advice. Yeah. If you can find any way at all to kind of try before you buy, so to speak, <laughs> I would highly recommend that. I love that. Before we close, is there anything that we would find on you if we, okay, is there anything that you think helped in your career or anything about your background that we wouldn't be able to find if we did a Google search for you? Background wise, I grew up in a really small farming community in Nebraska. And my dad was a farmer until 1998. I kind of grew up in this agricultural context. And maybe this sounds trite or whatever, but I think it definitely kind of reinforced the value of just hard work and dedication from an early age. So as a seven-year-old waking up with my dad to go irrigate, make sure the crops had water. As a high schooler, I got a job fixing these center pivot irrigation systems. So if you're in an airplane and you look down and you see those circles down on the farm ground, the center pivots are what makes those. They're basically big rotating sprinklers. So six days a week, I'd be waking up at 6.30 a.m., working from seven until dusk, 
to fix those things within basically a hundred mile radius of our town. So the crops, again, would get the water that they need just because we had to. If we didn't do that, the crops would die. The farmers would <laughs> have very, very adverse financial consequences. But while I was doing that, I also just kind of got interested in the early days of the web. This is going to date me for sure. But I got on GeoCities one day and reserved a site and started making a Star Trek fan site. I learned HTML, taught myself, just messed around with that kind of on the side. And that kind of got me interested in computers and tech. So I don't know, just kind of combine those two things like general interest in tech and hopefully working semi-hard to try to figure out what kind of niche I could carve out for myself in, in that space. And you probably heard from my story of how I got into product. It took me a while to figure out exactly what that looked like. Initially, I thought I wanted to be a hardware engineer. That sounded kind of fun. Quickly figured out that wasn't for me. It's a little too esoteric. Really like people, really like solving problems, really like learning about customers and getting understanding and empathy for them. So I don't know, it's just this whole combination of life circumstances and experiences that came together, I guess, to get me where I am today. I love it. It's cool. Okay, very important question. Favorite Star Trek captain? It's got to be Picard. Got to be Picard. That's I grew up with the next generation. Cool. Okay, we can be friends. We can be friends. All right. Picard is... It's definitely by far the best, in my opinion, as well. Yeah, love it. I love Star Trek. <laughs> when That's people awesome. mention it, I get extremely excited. Okay, great. So I think we're going to end. This was awesome. I thought we learned a lot. Yeah. But we usually end with three a little bit more weird questions. Okay. That will get the audience to get to know you better. Sure. So if you could delete all the apps and only keep one app on your phone, what would you keep? Only one app. This may sound lame, but probably just Twitter. I have a pretty curated feed. I am very deliberate about my follows. I like it being in time order. When they used to switch it to the best feeds first, I would get really mad. But yeah, I would say that's probably the app when I do have time to be on my phone that I probably spend the most on just getting caught up with like current events and tech, college football, pop culture, things like that. So I'm pretty reliant on that one. It's not lame. I mean, I think your podcast now for 70 something and no one has answered Twitter. So really so far at that question. Yeah, well, maybe I'm more unique than I thought. WhatsApp is a very popular answer. I don't really use WhatsApp, honestly. I don't know why. And Maps. Oh, yeah. Maps for sure. Yeah, I would yeah. actually probably struggle without that. Okay. If you had an app that allowed you to talk to one animal, what would it be? This is fun. I actually used to ask a very similar question at Huddle when I used to do an orientation or an onboarding session there. I will give you the answer that I used to give all of the classes there, which is an Ibex. That's kind of like a mountain goat. But I saw these things. I forget which nature documentary it was. But I saw them in a nature documentary and it was just absolutely wild. They were just running around on these sheer vertical cliff faces, running away from predators. Even the little baby ones were somehow doing this without falling to their doom. And I just would want to be, how are you doing this? How is this possible? Wow. Okay. That's cool. That's very original answer. And lastly, how about an unlikely app on your phone? What do you mean by unlikely? That maybe your friends, family would be surprised to find mm. on your phone. Okay. Well, I don't know. I, you know, I'm 36 years old, couple kids, very domestic. I don't know how much would be surprising, but I would say like maybe the most unique app or maybe surprising to people in Nebraska where you live might be this thing called Peak Pfizer. It just uses uh, AR to tell you what are various mountains and peaks around as you're climbing or hiking. So you can kind of get a sense of the lay of the land. We only moved out here about a year ago. So still relatively new, still still trying to figure out what is what and where is where. So it's actually pretty helpful when you're out there to, to kind of get a sense of, of where you are and what else might be out there and kind of get a sense of where might I want to explore next. So I don't know how surprising it might be, but definitely unique to people that I lived with and interacted with when I was in Nebraska for most of my life. 
Wow, that's really cool. Amazing. Well, Andrew, it was so cool having you. I feel you gave a ton of advice. I'm taking some of it to heart, especially the stuff around culture. And I just really, really appreciate your time today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to this and share with someone trying to grow their career. Until next time, keep growing. Keep growing.